Turning back again this morning to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, I'd like to continue, if the Lord would bless us, to look at the sermon, uh, often called the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus spoke here to the great multitude. This morning I'd like to look at verse 5 and 6. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. When the Lord Jesus Christ came upon the scene of this world, in the dark time between the Old Testament and New Testament, there gave rise to the sect called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were very, very concerned with the outward show of religion. Now, that's not to say that other Jewish individuals in the Old Testament day were not likewise the same. In fact, God often condemned Israel because they drew nigh with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. So it's very easy for any child of God to have an outward show of religion, but not have a heart towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must be always careful that our hearts would be tender to him and that we don't just put on a face of religion or a show of religion, but it truly is the sincere desire of our heart to serve the one who's done such great things for us. So here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ begins to really address that issue all through this sermon of those who were just giving lip service to morality and lip service to the commands of God They were doing it outwardly oftentimes, but always for show, and very rarely out of a sincere desire to honor the Lord. And the commandments of the Old Testament, uh, the law that we see in the Old Testament, especially the morality aspect of the law, is still very much in effect today. Now, even Jesus would say here in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law. He says, I am not come to destroy the law, uh, nor the prophets, he said, but to fulfill it. So the Lord Jesus Christ did not come in order simply to wipe the law out in the sense that it would have no impact or no um, way in our lives to instruct. But obviously the uh, dictates of the law that we could never fulfill, the Lord Jesus Christ took that and took care of it. The Bible says that he took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and he took it out of the way by nailing it to his cross. So thankfully the curse of the law is not upon you and me, but the morality that God expected of his people in the Old Testament is the same in the New Testament day. So here in Matthew chapter 5, again, the Lord begins this sermon by the words blessed. That word again means happy. And again, notice that he says blessed are, not blessed will be. So the individuals that are under consideration, you and me, I hope, are already in a blessed set of circumstances. Now, only he started out with blessed are the poor in spirit, those who understand that spiritually they have nothing. Uh, they are completely bankrupt without any wealth whatsoever spiritually to bring before God. Uh, John, in John chapter 4, uh, the Lord spoke to the woman at the well, says God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So for you and I to approach before God, we have to be spiritual individuals with a spiritual mind, a spiritual heart. And of course, that must come from the Spirit of God himself. It's not something that we can contrive of ourselves. So he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who recognize that uh, before God, they're completely bankrupt. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, blessed are they that mourn. 
As we pointed out uh, a couple weeks ago, the mourning here, I believe, is specifically mourning over the sins of our life. He said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now he says, blessed are the meek. So if an individual is poor in spirit, recognizing that they have nothing of themselves wherewith they can approach to God, but God has blessed them in spite of that and given to them a, a divine nature, a partaker of heavenly things, that we've been blessed to have the spirit of God dwell within us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that uh, we have uh, understood that we are sinners. We have mourned over sin. What's the next step? Well, the next step is blessed are the meek. A meek individual is somebody who is humble. A meek individual is not a weak individual. A meek individual is somebody who is able to restrain themselves and uh, maintain uh, a proper approach to God. Uh, we can come before God boastfully or we can come before God humbly. That's really the two ways that we come before the Lord. Here he says, blessed are the meek. He says, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, that verse is a direct quote from Psalm 37, verse 11. The Lord Jesus has just simply taken a verse from the Old Testament and quoting it again. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, that uh, last phrase, inherit the earth, don't uh, take that to mean that uh, uh, the only thing you're ever going to receive at the hands of the Lord are the things of this earth. That's not really what he's talking about. When he spoke that in Psalm 37, if you look at the context, uh, David says this. He talks in the two verses prior to that, that the wicked will not be. In other words, they shall be forgotten. Uh, their wickedness and also just who they are as people will just be completely taken out of the way. He says, but blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I learned from that that the wicked of this world, uh, obviously their end is not good. Uh, their destruction shall surely come. And there's a lot of times that I wonder, Lord, how long? Kind of like over in Revelation, those martyrs that were slain for their service to God, they said to the Lord, Jesus Christ, Lord, how long? In other words, when are you going to finally arise up in vengeance and judgment against the wicked? And when I see things that go on in this world that are uh, no doubt wicked and, and plague us, I sometimes ask the question myself, Lord, how long are you going to put up with this? But then I call to mind that the day is coming that the wicked who are having their best day now are there, they will meet their judgment. Uh, they will uh, have to uh, stand before uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and the uh, lion of the tribe of Judah will execute judgment against them at the last day. Again, in Psalm 37, verses 9 and 10, it makes clear that the wicked, they shall not be. In other words, they're not going to continue on in a way of blessings uh, like you and I shall. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It lets us know that you and I have an inheritance. We have a blessing that's going to be an ongoing blessing uh, before the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to look at this word meek for just a few moments and look at a few examples of meekness we find in the word of God. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, we find that when you and I are born of the Spirit of God, there are ninefold fruit of the Spirit that comes to the child of God when we're born of the Spirit of God. And among the things that we receive when we're born of the Spirit of God is the spirit of meekness. Uh, this spirit is contrary to nature. It's not in the nature of uh, carnal man to be meek. It's the nature of carnal man when something goes wrong, uh, when someone comes against us, to retaliate and react. That is not the way of the Word of God. That's not the way of the Spirit of God. Now, there are times, obviously, that God rises up in judgment. There are times that people have provoked the Lord, and the Lord rises up. Uh, but that should not be our first reaction. 
Uh, that should not be just the first way we respond when something negative comes against us. A meek individual, again, is not a weak individual, but there's somebody that are able to restrain their passions and understand that the God of heaven has made clear that vengeance is his and he will repay. In the book of uh, Numbers, we find in the 12th chapter, it says about Moses in the third verse, it says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So this morning, I'd like to look at two men in the Word of God that showed great meekness. Uh, one, of course, is Moses, we've just mentioned, and the next will be the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice here again, it says, now, the man Moses was very meek, not just meek, but very meek. Uh, he says, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Now, I want to know what's the context in which God says this. Uh, God has inspired us to be recorded of this man, Moses. Uh, Moses, of course, if you go back in history, you'll find that uh, there wasn't always uh, times that he controlled his passions. Go back to the book of Exodus in the second chapter, and you'll find that when he saw uh, his own countrymen being abused, uh, he responded. Uh, you'll also find uh, uh, throughout the life of Moses, there's times that he reacted in a way that he shouldn't have reacted. In fact, Moses was not allowed to enter into the land of promise because he overreacted uh, at the murmuring and the complaining of the children of God, and in thus doing, he despised the commandment of the Lord and did not sanctify God before the people. That's the occasion when God the second time told him uh, that water was to come forth from a rock. The first time, he was to smite a rock and water would come forth, and at Horeb, he smote the rock and water came forth. The second time, God told him, he says, you speak to the rock. But Moses is frustrated He's aggravated. He's at his wit's end with the murmuring and the complaining and the disobedience of the children of Israel. And that's not to excuse him, but he got to a point. He stood there before all those people and says, Here, ye rebels, must we, meaning me and God, must we fetch you water out of the rock. And he took his rod and he smote that rock twice. But God still brought water forth out of the rock and fed that great multitude of people. Despite Moses' disobedience, the people were still fed. Because God is faithful to provide for his people. Uh, but Moses would pay for that dearly. Uh, God would tell him that because he did not sanctify uh, God before the people, he would not enter the land of rest. And so Moses didn't enter into Canaan's land. So Moses there with times did not restrain his passions. But most of the time he did. Again, it says that this man Moses, he was uh, meek to the point that he was meek above all men upon the face of the earth. Now the whole background here in Numbers chapter 12 is Moses has married a woman that his uh, sister and brother do not think he should have married. So here you have Aaron and Miriam. They began to murmur against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. It says, And they said, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. Then it says, now the man Moses was very meek. In other words, Moses didn't respond to this. Moses did not retaliate. Moses did not react. Moses did not get in the flesh and say, hey, wait just a moment. You know, I, I'm the one that God has called. Now you can go back to Exodus chapter 3 and you'll find very clearly it was Moses that God called uh, to be the leader, the captain, uh, the deliverer, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And you'll find the meekness of Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and 4. 
Because five times in those two chapters, you're going to find Moses come up with reasons why he was the wrong choice to go to Egypt and to demand to Pharaoh that the children of Israel be let go. Uh, five times this man would come up with a reason, excuse, as to why he was not the right choice. Well, those very reasons were the exact reason God thought he was the right choice. Uh, he come up with all sorts of excuses as to why it ought to be somebody else. And God gave him an answer to every one of those excuses till finally he got down to the fifth one. And God just basically told him he didn't have a choice. He's going to go. Well, Moses obeyed the Lord and he went. So it's very clear in Exodus chapter 3 that it was Moses that God called. Moses was the one that God charged. It was Moses to whom this responsibility was given to deliver the children of Israel and to guide them and to lead them uh, throughout their wilderness journeys. But you know, every once in a while, some folks are not content with the place where God has placed them, and so they want to rise up against authority that God has set forth. This can happen in a community, it can happen uh, in a nation, it can happen even in a church. Uh, there are certain authorities, it, it can happen in a home. There's authority that God has set in the home, there's authority God has set in the church, there's authority He has set in uh, our nation and our communities, and when men and women began to violate the authority that God has set, the only thing that's going to res uh, result from that is great trouble, great confusion. There's a reason God has set order in the home, in the house of God, and in society, and that is so that you and I can benefit from a life that hopefully is a peaceable life. Well, anyway, here Moses, uh, excuse me, Aaron and Miriam, they get to thinking, we're on Moses' equal, we're on his plane. Here's Aaron, he's the high priest. Uh, certainly he should have the same authority as Moses, and here Miriam, I don't know where she think gets she, she gets the idea uh, that she also is on the same level as Moses. And so they began to condemn him uh, for this marriage. Now, I don't know if this marriage was right or not, but I do know that God will speak up to the questioning of the authority of Moses. Now, God, as far as I can tell, never does really give an answer about the marriage itself, but he does give an answer about the authority to which Moses has. Uh, it says that verse 4, And the Lord spake suddenly. Moses didn't have to address this. The Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam. He says, Come out ye three unto the tabernacle of the congregation. And the three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forth. Now, I wouldn't have wanted to be either of these two right now. I mean, this is kind of like when some of my children do something wrong and I can hear it somewhere in the other part of the house and I call out their name and I do it in a tone and I tell them to come here. And you know, there's a slow walk. I can hear it, but it is slow. They're not in a hurry to come. Now, they can hear me sometimes come in with uh, a treat or something and I can call their name and here they come running. Uh, but sometimes uh, they know I've heard them do something wrong and they know the tone of my voice, come here, and they know what's coming when they come here. And so, of course, they're not in a hurry to come. Well, that's kind of uh, the scene here with uh, Aaron and Miriam. The Lord tells them, you come here. And notice what the Lord says. He says, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. He says, if there is a true prophet, he says, here's how I'll talk to them. I'll give them visions. I'll give them dreams. But notice what he says about, he says, but Moses, my servant, is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. Notice what God says about Moses. He says, Moses is not like the other prophets. He says, Moses is faithful in all mine house. With him, he says, well, I speak mouth to mouth. 
even apparently and not in dark speeches and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold wherefore they were yet not afraid to speak against my service but you know here the Lord's like how in the world can you have such boldness to come and speak against my servant this way he says many prophets have been uh, in the land he says and I've used dreams I've used dark sayings dark speeches but not with Moses Moses, he says, I've spent him mouth to mouth, meaning face to face. Remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai? He went up there, and when he, came, when he went up there, there was no veil. He spoke to God face to face. Now, when he came down to speak to the people, they had to put a veil over the face of Moses because of the glory of God that shone upon his face. They could not behold it. And the Bible says that when he went back up to speak with the Lord, the veil would be taken away. Uh, here he was a man that spoke face to face with God. So here, Aaron and Miriam, they've forgotten about that. Uh, they've um, tried to assert a place that did not belong to them. And the end result will be is Miriam is going to end up leprous. Uh, God is going to strike her with leprosy for about seven days. Moses intervenes for them, intercedes for them, prays for them. And we'll find after seven days that uh, Miriam is clean once again and able to come back into their camp of the children of Israel. Now let's look at another experience very quickly in Numbers chapter 16. In Numbers chapter 16 it says, Now Korah, the sons of Izhar, the son of Kohat, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. Now, just a moment here, let me explain about Korah. Now, Korah is a son of Levi. He's a Levite, so he has responsibility regarding the temple of God, or the tabernacle of God at this time. In fact, they had charge over the furnishings of the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle was to be taken down and moved, it was the sons of Korah that were to carry, for instance, the Ark of the Covenant. It was only the sons of Korah that had the right and the responsibility to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Later, when David would carry it back into the, or try to carry it back to uh, the city of God, to the tabernacle, he didn't use the sons of Korah, and he didn't do it with the way that God had prescribed. God had prescribed that there were to be two poles made out of shittim wood that were covered with pure gold, and there were rings on the side of the Ark of the Covenant, and they were to slide those two poles through those rings, and the sons of Korah were to bear the Ark upon their shoulders. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant, of course, was the testimony of the Lord. It was a very, very precious uh, uh, emblem of the worship of God, and it was to be borne upon the shoulders. Why the shoulders? Because that's very near to the heart. He gives a picture of bearing up the Ark of the Covenant uh, uh, upon the hearts of the sons of Korah. So the sons of Korah had a great responsibility. It's not that they were least among the children of Israel. They had a very, very high responsibility among the children of Israel, but Korah wasn't satisfied with that. So it says uh, that they rise up, 250 men, uh, led by three. It says, they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy. In other words, they're saying, we all have the authority, we all have the right, and you're taking too much upon yourself. Well, notice, Moses never took anything upon himself which God didn't commit to him. Uh, Moses didn't want this job to start with. Uh, there were times that Moses would have gladly handed it over to anybody else. 
How many times did uh, Moses come before the Lord and beg the Lord? In fact, uh, in Exodus, we find that uh, he's so fed up with the children of Israel and they're murmuring and complaining uh, that God tells him, he says, you go for it, I'll go with you. And Moses says, well, if you don't go with me, then I just won't go. Uh, you know, I need your strength, I need your blessing, I need your help. Well, anyway, here in Numbers chapter 16, these men, they rise up. They began to question Moses and his authority. Moses, though, uh, does not react in an ungodly way. Moses lets them know, here's what's going to happen. Every man the next morning is to take their censer. Uh, they're to put fire in the censer, and they're to come before the Lord. We're going to find that at the end of all this, Moses says, if these men die an ordinary death, then we know that they had just as much authority, this is my words, just as much authority as I did. He says, but if they die in some extraordinary way, uh, like, for instance, the earth opening up and swallowing them, then we know that this is of the Lord. Well, what happens? We find that everybody has to get away from the tabernacle of this man, Korah, and they do so, and the earth opens up and swallows this man and, these other, and all their belongings, and then the earth closes back up. This wasn't a normal earthquake. A lot of times in an earthquake, of course, the earth is split open, and a lot of times you'll still see where the earth was split open. That's not how this happened. God just almost like, uh, like when Jonah was swallowed by the whale, just the mouth of the earth opened up and then closed back. And here these men were taken alive, and there they were buried by the Lord, by the earth, in a judgment, because here they were trying to assume authority they did not have. Anyway, again, there in Numbers chapter uh, 12, it says that Moses, he was meek, very meek, above all the men that are upon the face of the earth. Here's just two experiences that Moses had when he was questioned, his authority was questioned. And instead of retaliating, he just said, let the Lord take care of the matter. And the Lord blessed, and the Lord took care of it. Now then, let's turn and look for a moment at the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew, the 11th chapter, we find the Lord Jesus in one of those beautiful verses. says, Come unto me, all ye that are he uh, burdened and are heavy laden. He says, And I will give you rest. Now, he let us know that the rest that he's going to give us is soul rest. And there's times that I'm weary in soul, and I need that. There's sometimes I'm weary in body. And there's times I'm weary in mind, but there's times that my soul is weary. Say, so what does that mean? Well, there's times that I'm weary of this world. There's times that I'm weary of sin. There's times that I'm weary of my own sin and the sins of others, and I'm weary of everything that this world has to offer. And there's times that I just long to leave this place and be with the Lord. I'm like David there in Psalm 55 when he says, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, then would I fly away and be at rest. Well, here the Lord says in Matthew the 11th chapter, He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Notice what He goes on to say. He says, For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Then He says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, this, uh, <laughs> this invitation of the Lord uh, to come when we're uh, weary in this world to find rest to him uh, seems somewhat contradictory. It seems like a paradox. He says, come and rest. Then he says, but take my yoke upon you. Uh, anybody who knows anything about agriculture knows that a yoke is all about labor. Uh, yoke, of course, was a piece of uh, agricultural equipment that was placed upon a beast of burden so that they could pull a plow or maybe pull a cart. 
Uh, here the Lord says, I'm going to give you rest, but in resting, I want you to labor. He says, take my yoke upon you. And then he says, before you do anything else, take the yoke. But he says, but then you need to learn of me. He says, here's what you need to learn. He says, for I am meek and I am lowly in heart. Here the Lord tells us that we're to find rest in him. But as we find rest in him, then we're to labor in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to labor in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's some things about him that we're supposed to learn. And when he means learn that, that doesn't just mean intellectually learn it. It means to understand it and put it into place in our own lives. He says, for I am meek and I am lowly in heart. Now, if there was anybody that ever had the right uh, to be boastful, uh, to be proud, uh, to be one that would uh, project themselves uh, as many do in this world today, it'd be the Lord Jesus Christ, would it not? I mean, he had, he's the son of God. He made heaven and earth and all things therein. Uh, and yet, here he tells his disciples, he says, there's going to be times in your life that you're going to be weary of soul. And when you find yourself in that way, you come unto me uh, when you labor and you're heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, but I want you to take my yoke upon you. There's a service you're to do. There's a labor you're to do. He says, you take my yoke, not the world's yoke, but my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart. He says, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And then he says about his yoke, he says, it is easy and my burden is light. Now, there's been times I hadn't felt that it was so easy and light. But I also have learned this, that usually when I was finding it not so easy and light, I wasn't coming to him to find rest and strength. Anyway, when I come to him to find rest and strength, I have found that his burden and his yoke is easy and it's light. Why? Because he helps me bear it up. He gives me the strength to endure. He blesses me along the way. Well, later in Matthew's gospel, we find in Matthew chapter 21, that Lord Jesus Christ is about to come into Jerusalem for the last time. We often call this the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now this is the King of Kings coming in to the capital city of what the world would consider his kingdom. Of course, he will later make clear to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Later, two chapters after this, the Lord Jesus Christ would say about the temple of God, which was in the Jews' mind, the pinnacle of the earth. Now, you couldn't reach a higher place than the house of God, the temple of, uh, of Solomon. Well, at that time, the temple of Herod had been rebuilt. I mean, there was no greater place. But in Matthew chapter 23, you know what the Lord Jesus said about their house? He says, behold, your house, not my house. He says, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Why? Because he had written Ichabod above the door of that house. What does that mean? That the glory of the Lord has departed. Uh, and we would see that later in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ when the temple veil was rent in twain from the top down to the bottom. Uh, all of a sudden, that temple was no longer instrumental in the service of God in heaven. Uh, but anyway, here in Matthew chapter 21, he's going to come in to the capital city uh, of, Jeru of Israel, Jerusalem, as the king. And you would think, obviously, and so would many in that day, that the king would enter in in a, a valiant way. And he'd be coming in with golden chariots led by, uh, we would imagine, either some beautiful white horse or uh, some beautiful black stallion. But that's not the way that the Son of God is going to enter in to his own capital city uh, to end up suffering death and uh, being laid in a tomb. Uh, the Bible tells us in verse 5, it says, All this was done 
which was spoken by the prophet saying, verse 5, Tell you the daughter of Zion, uh, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. Now this is all described to us in the verses before. It says, When they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, were come to Bethphage, under the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go ye into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied, and a colt with her. Loose them, and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say the Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. So the Lord Jesus Christ, he sends two in. He says you're to go, and as you go in, you're going to find an ass, and you're going to find the full of the colt of an ass. And as you do so, you lead them out to me. And if anybody says anything, you just let them know that the master has need of them. Now this is spoken in prophecy. Uh, you can go back and find this uh, written for us in the book of Zechariah, the ninth chapter. Uh, this is going to be one of the ways that the people of God would realize this is the Son of God who's coming in. Uh, but again, you don't find Him coming in in some golden chariot. Uh, he's not led in in some great possession as He's wearing a crown and robes and uh, all sorts of uh, pomp and circumstance going before Him. Now you will find that individuals began to recognize and see and they take palm branches and lay before Him and say, Hosanna, blessed is He who cometh in the name of the Lord. But notice how He rides in. Uh, he comes in on a beast of burden, not a beast uh, that would normally be associated with the king. Why? Because he says, thy king cometh unto thee meek. Here's how he comes to you. Who, a man who is restraining his strength. Again, that's what meek, meekness really means, is to restrain our strength. And here the Lord Jesus Christ could have come in in any way. In fact, read Revelation chapter 19. In the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ in that picture doesn't look anything like he does in this picture. This picture, he comes in lowly, he comes in meek, he's the king of Zion, but here he comes riding on the uh, full of an ass. That's not going to happen in Revelation 19. In Revelation chapter 19, here he is on a white horse. And the Bible says that his name is faithful and true. And upon his vesture it is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the Bible says that here he comes with a sword. And there he is coming in domination. Uh, coming that day in victory and triumph. A completely different picture than what we see him entering into the city of God here in Matthew chapter one, why, or 21. Why? Because here he is showing once again that here I am meek and I am lowly in heart. But again, he says, blessed are the meek. Jesus showed us the example of it. Philippians, the second chapter, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, but took upon him the form of a servant, being fashioned as a man, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That is the humility and the meekness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says again, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He restrained who he was. How many times when men came against him could he have just simply spoke and they would have been vanquished in a moment uh, as he was uh, going to uh, be crucified. Uh, there were that moment when he finally says, uh, you know, I could call presently of my father and he would send 12 legions of angels. Understand that Jesus Christ in the moments of his suffering and all that was going on there upon him uh, and within him, at any moment he could have stopped all of that. But he restrained himself. Why? Because he was meek 
and lowly in heart, understanding the blessing that would come for you and I. So again, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Then he says, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. So he says, first of all, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who realize they have nothing to bring before God. Blessed are they that mourn, that understand that we are sinners. Then he says, blessed are the meek. Somebody who recognizes that anything that we're blessed with is because God has just been gracious to us. And grace, of course, means a blessing that we did not deserve, that was not merited in any way. And so that ought to provoke meekness in the child of God. That ought to provoke a humility in the heart of the child of God. To know that here we're now blessed of God and such. Uh, we should not be arrogant about that. We should be grateful. We should be thankful. We ought to honor him. We ought to praise him. Uh, we ought to bless his name for what he has uh, given to us. But that, does never, that doesn't mean we should boast in ourselves. We certainly should boast in him. Paul says, if I'm going to glory, I'll glory in the cross. He says, if there's any glorying in my life, he said, I want it all centered in what the Lord has done for me. So blessed are the meek. Now, a person who is meek, again, they're restraining their natural desire to react, to respond. Then he says, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is a person who realizes that apart from God, they have nothing to bring to God because they're poor in spirit. We're sinners which ought to provoke mourning. We realize how undone we are, which hopefully provokes a humility, a humility in us. But then the next thing that ought to well up in the heart of a child of God is a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. Now, this doesn't say a hungering and a thirsting for the gospel. Now, I think that would come along with it at some point, but this is a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness itself. You know, the Apostle Paul would say to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, around verse 8 or 9, he tells them that I want to be found in him, verse 9, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. He says, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. He says that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable unto his death. So here again the apostle he says, and remember this is a man that in his prior life, before he was struck down on the Damascus road, he felt himself to be very righteous. I mean if you had looked at the life of Saul of Tarsus and you had looked at the outward appearance of it, you would have struggled to find anything wrong. You would have looked, uh, well, has he committed adultery? No, he's not done that. What about fornication? No, he hasn't done that. Has he, um, has he lied as far as we can tell? No, he hasn't. I mean, just go down through the list of all the sins you can think of. And Saul of Tarsus was very careful. It's almost like every morning he got up with a checklist of things not to do. And every day he read that over and he could check it off at the end of the day. Well, I didn't do those things. Just like that Pharisee that came up to the house of God with the uh, publican and says, you know, I'm uh, not extorted. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not this. I'm not that. Now, he never did really tell what he did do. He just told us a lot of what he didn't do. Uh, but anyway, he bragged about what he hadn't done wrong. Of course, he didn't go home to his house justified like the publican did. 
who just said to the Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But Saul of Tarsus thought himself very righteous. And listen, even after the new birth, if we're not careful, we likewise can think of ourselves as righteous. And outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, we certainly have no righteousness. Isaiah 63 says that all our righteousness, that's ours. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All of them. You say, well, then why even try it? Notice it says all our righteousnesses. But you know, thankfully the Bible teaches us that there's a righteousness that's been imputed to you and imputed to me. That means put to our account. And that, of course, is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 3 when he says in verse 9, I want to be found in him. Uh, when the day comes, when the reckoning occurs, he says, I want to be found in him. Well, Paul had no concern. Uh, he had already be found, been found in Christ. Why? Because he was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And you don't have to worry about being found in the Lord Jesus Christ at the last day. When you breathe out your last, you don't have to be concerned about being found in Him or not. Because God placed you in Christ before the world began. But notice Paul's desire is a good desire. He says, I want to be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law. He says, I recognize that I could try to uh, uh, check mark everything that the law would tell me to do or not to do. Every day of my life, I could try that. He says, I've done that in fact. He says, I've lived that life. I've tried to measure up to the mark. I've tried every day to do everything that God said to do and everything he said not to do. And I tried to live by my own righteousness. Read Romans chapter 7 and the conclusion that Paul came to about that. He says, I was alive without the law once. He says, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What does he mean by that? He says, before I was born of the Spirit of God, he says, I was keeping the law to every point. He says, but then all of it is on the surface. <laughs> you know, outwardly, he was keeping the law. As far as anybody could see, he was doing everything that God would require. He says, but when the commandment came, what does that mean? The commandment of God to live. Uh, with that dead man in sin who became alive in the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, he says, sin revived. What does that mean? He says, it, it welled up in front of me. Like a wave stood up before me. He says, sin revived. And I died. He says, I was alive without the law once. That seems contrary language. All he's saying is before I was born of the Spirit of God, I was happy and content because I thought I was doing everything just right. And then the commandment came. Life came. And all of a sudden, I could see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. He said, I couldn't see that before. He said, I could see it now. And that's why he would say here, he says, I want to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. He says, but I want to be found this way, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Just spend just a moment trying to break that phrase apart. He says, I don't want the righteousness which is of the law. He says, but I want a different righteousness. He didn't say I don't want righteousness. He says, but there's two types. He says, there's one that comes by the law. He says, I've tried that route, and it didn't work. There was no satisfaction there. I was still hungry. I was still thirsting. I hadn't been filled. If he'd have been filled, why was he still craving this? Because it didn't fill him. Trying on your own, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, to just mark off the boxes every day, 
whether it be to pray, to do this, to read the Bible, so forth. If you're not doing it out of a heart towards the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what? At the end of the day, you're still going to be hungering and you're going to be thirsting because you haven't done it from the heart and thus there's no filling. Well, here Paul, he had learned by experience that he could do everything the law said to do outwardly. And at the end of that, he still felt empty. In fact, beyond that, he says, when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That's how distraught he was over all his life effort. I mean, think about it. I don't know how old he was when he was born again. Let's say he was, let's just say 40. I mean, I don't know. But you know he thought all that time was essentially wasted. All that time, all that, it was for nothing because I wasn't doing it for the right reason. So he says, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. He says, but that which is through the faith of Christ. That phrase, through the faith of Christ, means through the fidelity or the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, there is a righteousness that you possess in Christ because of what he's done that's been given to you freely. Now then he goes on to say, he said, the righteousness which is of God, that means from God, by faith. So now there is an exercise of righteousness for the child of God to do. But we first must recognize that this righteousness, it's contrary to the righteousness that Paul was doing prior to Acts chapter 9. That he was just doing to tick off the boxes. Just to say, you know, I've kept the law. Uh, that's not what Paul is now saying. He says, now I want a righteousness, he says, that is through faith. It is through the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, through his faithful work in keeping the law. He says, that's the faith I want. He says, and this righteousness, it comes from God by faith. It's not something that you and I can contrive of ourselves. It's something that God must grant. It's something that God must give us. Uh, not only the ability, but also the desire to strive after. And so that's what Paul says he wanted. He says, I want to live a life that's righteous. And even though it appeared righteous before Acts chapter 9, that's not the life I'm looking for now. He says, that, that led to nothing. You know, he would let us know that all those things that he counted so important he says, I do count them but dung that I may win Christ. Everything that went before, Acts 9, that's where he had arrived. But now this is a man who was hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And according to what he says here, he had been filled. In the book of Revelation, the seventh chapter, it says in the last three verses, it says in verse 15, Therefore are they before the throne of God, talking about saints that are with the Lord, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. There's a lot about that verse that really sounds good. Now, when he's talking about hunger, I don't think he's talking about a natural hunger for just regular food or a drink of water. Uh, here in a few moments, when I end this sermon, I'm going to take a drink of water. Um, but that's, and I'm hopefully going to have dinner here shortly. But that's not the thirsting and the hungering that here is spoken of in Revelation. So here they are in heaven with the Lord now. 
These are saints that are now in glory. And notice one of the blessings of being there. They hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Why? Because they're in the presence of righteousness. He says, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. That part sounds really good uh, here at the end of summer uh, when I think about one of the blessings of heaven. But notice what he says, for the Lamb of God, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There is no more discontent. There's no more guilt. There's no more struggle over sin. Why? Because they're in the presence of the one who is the personification of righteousness. So again, the Lord Jesus Christ says, blessed are the meek. Those of us who are able to restrain ourselves, we may have the strength to retaliate when men do evil things against us or things, thing, say things against us they shouldn't. But a meek individual like the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't react and respond when people came. Moses, we saw a great example there when people were trying to impugn the authority that God gave him. He just commended that to God and God spoke up. God took care of the matter. How many times in the life of Jesus did men come against him and he just commended that situation to God and God took care of it? Uh, times that men would come against Paul the apostle and likewise he would just commend that issue to God. I think about in 2 Timothy chapter 4 there was a man uh, named Alexander. He was a coppersmith and apparently had done Paul much evil. You know what Paul says? He says, the Lord reward him according to his works. Paul didn't say, well, I'm going to retaliate. I'm going to get, Paul didn't even tell us what he did. Just did him evil. I don't know what kind of evil. I don't know exactly what he had done against Paul, but Paul didn't retaliate. You know what Paul said in that statement? I think he did evil. I think he was wrong, but I'm not God. So I'm going to let the Lord reward him according to his works. And if the Lord has said that he's justified in what he's did, the Lord will bless him. And if the Lord says he wasn't justified in what he did against me, then, then the Lord, of course, will take care of it. And that's exactly what our attitude should be. So again, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The opposite are the arrogant, the proud, the wicked of this world. They shall not be. Their day will come. But you will be blessed, of course, with life everlasting in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now that verse doesn't mean that every child of God who's born of the Spirit of God who hungers and thirsts after righteousness is going to find the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know over the face of the earth there's many that will not know the true doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that they will not be filled. Uh, here they're hungering and thirsting for what? He didn't say the gospel. He says they're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's a desire in the heart, I believe, of every born-again child of God, at least at some point, that they crave to be in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, to have his nature, to have his righteousness. And that is going to happen for every child of God, whether they know this, the truth of the Bible, this side of heaven or not. He has promised that everyone that hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be filled. I would to God that I would hunger and thirst after it each and every day of my life. You know, David, that's exactly what he hungered for. As you read Psalm 51, and we looked at that a couple weeks ago, there's a lot of parallels about David's life after he sinned with Bathsheba and what the Lord is here declaring. Remember, David, he confessed, he says, against thee, 
and the only have I sinned. Uh, he says, I, I know I, he says, uh, purge me with hyssop. What's he saying there? He's like, do like they did on uh, the day that the death of the firstborn happened in the land of Egypt. They took hyss hyssop, which was uh, sort of like a, just a bunch of weeds clumped together, like a paintbrush, dipped it in blood, and of course put it to the doorpost and the lintel of the houses, and God saw the blood and passed it. David's saying, take the blood of the Son of God and paint it over my life and pass over me in my sin. But then later he says, create in me a clean heart. What's he saying there? I'm hungering and I'm thirsting for a standing in righteousness that I had before. I did this very wicked thing. So he says, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. And I believe the Lord did that. God answered his prayer. Because you can read in Psalm 32, as David records his diary of the answer of that prayer and how David had felt uh, cleansed of his sin and God had taken care of the matter. So again, he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Again, these are things that are internal to the child of God. Now, he's going to start next to talk about the external life of the child of God. And we're not going to address that today, but he's going to start looking at what flows out from a child of God who recognizes their poor in spirit, that knows they're sinners and they mourn over that, that are meek, that know how to try to restrain themselves from wickedness in this world, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and they're filled. What's the next uh, logical thing that comes? He says, blessed are the merciful. There's something now that proceeds forth from the heart of a child of God that's been so touched by the Son of God that it's going to impact the way that we live. And if God will bless us, we'll try to look at that in future days. May God bless us.